Well, if you've been with us for worship this month, you know that we started a new sermon series on the Gospel of Mark the first week of March. And in light of the recent events, the obvious events that are going on around us, we took a break from that sermon series last week. Um, Pastor Peter preached a sermon on Psalm 91 in light of the COVID-19 pandemic, and he called us to place our trust in God. Uh, And in the words of the psalm, Psalm 91, to find our shelter in the shadow of the Almighty. And you may want to find that on our website if you haven't had an opportunity to hear that yet yourself, just for perspective and encouragement during this time. This morning, we're going to pick back up with our sermon series in Mark. Uh, And I think that you'll find that it also points us to our eternal hope, and it informs how we should live in this world in all circumstance. In every circumstance, we find ourselves this side of heaven, including the time we find ourselves in today. And so if you have your Bible, turn to Mark chapter 1. We'll read verses 14 through 20. Mark 1, 14 through 20. This is the word of God. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little further, farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Let's pray. Father, once again, we come before you, and we just simply ask at this point, in our service, that you would work in our hearts, Lord, by your Spirit. Help us to be receptive to your Word. Lord, help us to experience Jesus. We don't see him in the same way walking along the Sea of Galilee that these first disciples did, but Lord, Jesus is here. Uh, He is present uh, through your Spirit, and so Lord, help us to encounter Jesus today, to hear his call to us, and to respond with faith and faithfulness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is a a beloved fantasy novel by C.S. Lewis. And most of the novel is set in this fantastical world called Narnia, a magical land with talking animals and mythical creatures. And the central figure in the book is this lion, Aslan. Aslan is the creator of Narnia and its rightful king, but Aslan has been away from Narnia for many years. And in his absence, an evil white witch has ruled the land for a hundred years, and she uses her magic to make everything frozen so that it's always winter, but never Christmas. The story follows four English children, Peter, Susan, Edmund and Lucy, who find their way into this fantastical land through this this wardrobe in this old country house that acts like a portal into Narnia. And a turning point in the story happens in a chapter in the book called Aslan 
is nearer. Aslan is nearer. The white white witch has captured Edmund by this point, and she's in hot pursuit of the other children. She's racing over the snow in her sleigh. But imperceptibly at first, it starts to get warmer. The snow starts to get softer. The sleigh begins to bog down. Pretty soon, the sleigh is hitting stones until it finally gets stuck in the mud. And then they they start to hear this strange, sweet, rustling, chattering noise, the noise of running water. And flowers start to pop up through the thawing snow. Birds start chirping and leaves start popping out on the trees. And finally, the penny drops. And the witch's evil henchman says, This is no thaw. This is spring. What are we to do? Your winter has been destroyed. This is Aslan's doing. C.S. Lewis wrote this story as an allegory of the gospel. And this part of the story, this particular chapter, corresponds well, I think, with our passage today. C.S. Lewis would say, Aslan is nearer. The rightful king is on the move. And when Aslan shows up, he makes things right. He fixes the evil and the brokenness in the world, but he does it by enlisting the help of children, those sons and daughters of Adam. And Mark, I think, is saying something similar in our passage today. In our passage, he explains that the king has come near. And this demands a response from us. When we meet the king, he calls us to faith, to follow, and to fish. To faith, to follow, and to fish. So let's let's consider how the king calls us to faith. Verse 14 says that Jesus went about proclaiming the good news, or we might translate this word from the original Greek, the gospel. He proclaimed the good news or the gospel of God. Now, what's the gospel? What's the good news? How does Jesus summarize it? Well, he tells us in the next verse, in verse 15, he says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. That's the good news. The kingdom of God has come near. It's begun breaking into the world. Winter is broken And spring has begun. Why? Why now? Because the king has come. Ultimately, the kingdom of God is that state of affairs, that final state of affairs, when God reigns unopposed and and he reigns over a transformed universe. It's when our salvation is complete, when all the spiritual and material blessings our bodies and our souls experience will be experienced in all of their fullness, the way God always intended. The universe itself will be renewed in all its glory. Everything will be the way it ought to be. Ever since sin first entered into our world, all of us have been desperately waiting for that day. All of the aches and pains and unfulfilled longings you have had or will ever have are crying out for that day to come. When God's kingdom in all of its fullness comes, there will be no COVID-19. There will be no disease of any kind. There will be no injustice, no sin, no heartbreak. 
Until the coming of Jesus, it was like thousands of years of winter that, uh, that has come into the world uh, under the evil power of the witch, of this enemy. But because the king is here, because the king is here, the power of the kingdom has begun to break into this world. We'll read over and over again and again throughout the Gospel of Mark that the power of Satan and the curse is broken. Spring has come. Granted, the full flower of summer is still in front of us, awaiting Christ's second coming, but spring has come. Jesus' miracles were not magic tricks. They're not myths. They're not made-up stories. They're signs. Signs of the kingdom, indicators that the full glory of summer is coming when there is no longer an enemy, when there is no sin or sickness or disease or sadness or death. Jesus' miracles are like the grass and the flowers poking up through the melting snow. It's truly good news. It's the best news imaginable. It's not just a vaccine for the latest virus. It's, it's the antidote for everything that is broken in you, in me, and in the entire world. What do we do in response to this good news? Jesus tells us that too. Verse 15, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Believe the good news. The nearness of the kingdom, friends, demands a response from us. Repentance and faith. What's that mean? Well, it certainly includes feeling sorry for the things that you're doing that you know God doesn't want you to do, but it goes much deeper than that. Imagine, parents, if you have children, imagine you have a kid who keeps forgetting to turn in his or her homework and doesn't really study for tests. Now, that may be a completely hypothetical situation none of us can relate to, but, but try to imagine what that might be like. And as a parent, you know that they're not taking seriously their schoolwork, but their schoolwork is important for their future. And so you recognize that failing to turn in uh, their homework is not the main issue. It's a symptom of something else. The problem goes much deeper than that. Perhaps they just don't care about school. They'd rather play video games or hang out with their friends or squirrel away their time in any number of ways because they just don't value their education. Now, what would repentance look like for your child? Is it just saying sorry for missing another assignment? Or does it go deeper than that? Repentance would mean a whole new attitude, a new recognition of the value of school, and that would result in new behaviors. And so when Jesus tells us to repent here, he's not simply saying that we should say sorry for our moral failures. Of course, it includes that. But more than that, he's calling us to a total reorientation of our thinking and our emotions in light of a new way of seeing the world that results in a new way of living, new behaviors. It's glorifying God and enjoying Him forever. It's connecting your daily life to the priorities of God's kingdom. 
And of course, you don't just do that once. A disciple is someone who each and every day asks themselves how they can live more fully under God's reign and let it shape the fabric of their lives more today than yesterday. But we can only repent if there's forgiveness and grace and mercy available. And so we don't just repent, we believe the gospel. We repent and believe the good news. Repentance and faith are two sides to the same coin. You can't truly have one without the other. And so the gospel tells us that through faith in Christ, you are completely loved and accepted, forgiven by God. If you really get that, if if you let it sink down into your soul so that it shapes the way you think about yourself, the way you feel about yourself, if you get that, Nothing can shake you. The God of the universe loves and delights in you. And if that's true, you can actually be honest with yourself. You have the freedom to take a deep look inside and not be devastated by what you see there. As the late Jack Miller used to say, cheer up. You're far worse than you think you are. But at the same time, cheer up. God loves you more than you could ever dare dream. And you know that no matter what happens in your life, no matter what circumstances come upon you, your eternal future is secure. You have the fullness of the kingdom of God in front of you. And so how do you respond when you recognize that God himself has entered into human history in the person of Jesus Christ? You come to Jesus in repentance and faith. You turn from your sin and you trust him for salvation. And and that, that turning and trusting, that faith, naturally leads second to following following. In verse 16, Jesus walks beside the Sea of Galilee. He sees Simon and Andrew fishing. And then in verse 17, he says, come follow me. In verse 18, at once, immediately, they left their nets and followed him. He sees James and John. The same thing happens in verses 19 and 20. Immediately, without delay, they left their father in the boat with the hired hands and followed Jesus. I think this shows us a couple of things about what it means to follow Jesus. First, Jesus has sovereign authority over our lives. Sovereign authority over our lives. When Jesus called them, every one of them responded immediately. When Jesus calls us, we we should respond with prompt obedience. If you sense him speaking to you, don't drag it out. Right? Oh, respond. His authority extended to their jobs, to their relationship with their family. Jesus has the sovereign right as the king of the universe to claim us, to claim us for his kingdom's service. He defines the purpose of our lives. When we come to Jesus, we almost always come to him looking for someone to love us, to forgive us, to accept us but not always to rule us. In fact, you may find that that idea very offensive. This idea that someone has authority over you, but 
There is no alternative to being under the rule of a king. If Jesus is not your king, someone or something else is. How does whatever that thing is compare with him? Is it all good and all powerful and all wise like he is? Is it your creator who knows the end from the beginning? Is is it your savior who loves you so much he would lay down his life for you? What is the alternative to Jesus, really? And so when we come to him, we come to him and we, we let him reorient our lives. These four men left everything they knew to follow Jesus. If you claim to follow Christ, your faith can't just be one of many aspects of your life. It has to be the central defining thing. God intends your relationship with him to inform every aspect of your life. Does it? Does it? Probably not yet. But another thing we learn from this story, second, is that Jesus calls us as he finds us. He calls us as he finds us. As we'll see throughout the gospel, the disciples are not spiritual giants yet. Right? They're normal, sinful, flawed, self-centered people just like everyone else. You don't need to clean yourself up before you meet Jesus. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus meets us where we're at. The, the, the king of the universe, the one true God, is a savior as well as a king. He meets us in our need. What do you need? Forgiveness, for sure. Direction for your life. Truth, deliverance, wholeness, you'll only truly find these things as you follow Jesus. And so our response to the king is to have faith and to follow him. And this passage also calls us to fish for him, to fish for him. Jesus had a purpose for calling his disciples. Certainly he wanted a relationship with him, with them. That's a beautiful thing. But that relationship doesn't stop with them. It starts with them. It radiates out from them to always include and invite more people into the family. Verse 17, come follow me, Jesus said. Why? And I will send you out to fish for people. Come follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. He takes fishermen and makes them into fishers of men. Now, this is a clever play on words with their vocation, but I don't think it's just a mere coincidence. I think there's a reason that the first disciples Jesus called were fishermen. In Jeremiah 16, in the Old Testament, this prophet, uh, God speaks through Jeremiah. God promises to redeem his people from exile, and he uses the imagery of sending out fishermen to catch his people and bring them back. Jeremiah 16, 16, But now I will send for many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will catch them, responding to his scattered lost people. But this promise doesn't only apply to the Jews of the Old Testament who went into exile. It applies to people from every nation. In a couple of verses later, in verse 19, Jeremiah goes on to say, O Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble. 
to you shall the nations come from the ends of the earth. And that, friends, is exactly what begins to happen on the Sea of Galilee in the ministry of Jesus. By calling fishermen to become fishers of men, Jesus is saying that the fulfillment of the kingdom of God has begun. It started, and God is now engaging his mission in earnest to to call people from every nation, every tribe, every background to come follow him. And the way he extends that call is through his disciples. It's through us. Just like all-powerful Aslan defeated the White Witch with the help of four children, we get to be part of what God is doing to make all things new and to redeem a people for himself. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is your calling. It's not optional. It will look differently for each one of us for sure, but your life must demonstrate some reality of fishing for people. You may have an unprecedented opportunity during this time of uncertainty to share the gospel with a neighbor or a friend or a coworker. You may share the gospel directly with them yourself. You might invite them to Christianity Explored, this investigative Bible study that we had planned. We're looking for a way to host that online in smaller groups. And so that would be a wonderful way to invite someone who is spiritually interested during this time to read the Gospel of Mark with you and a handful of people and explore questions of faith and meaning. Pray for them. Look for those opportunities to invite someone to follow Jesus or explore what that might look like. Fishing for people flows out of prayer. Will you join us in one of these three weekly kingdom prayer meetings that we have each week? 30 minutes online, Sunday, Monday, Thursday evenings, we'll be praying for needs that we're aware of and also that God would use this time in our society to advance his kingdom in fresh, far-reaching ways. Maybe the first step of application for you in response to God's word this morning is to join one of these prayer meetings this week. Fishing for people means that you will look for ways, you'll find ways to serve people, especially during this time. Appropriate ways to serve the common good. As you think about this calling... Where do you need to repent of your unwillingness to fish for people? How do you need to believe that this is not just an inconvenient burden on you, but it's God's best for you? It's his calling on your life as one of his followers. Jesus meets us where he finds us, but when he calls us, he's committing, committed to transforming us. That's what discipleship is all about. Through it, through discipleship, we come to know Jesus better. Through discipleship, we're oriented and equipped to follow him in his mission. You won't live this way unless you recognize who Jesus is and unless you experience his love for you in sending out fishermen to find you for the sake of the gospel. This passage calls us 
to immediate prompt obedience to Jesus as our King. It calls us to join him in his mission to extend the gospel in word and deed to others. But friends, that call is issued by a king who tirelessly serves you. Every other king forces you to serve them. Jesus doesn't need your service. He's quite capable of doing things on his own. Thank you very much. So when he calls you into service, this is a calling to a privilege. It's a calling to share his missionary life, to be sent for others, to constantly be inviting others into communion, into fellowship, into community. This is a way to life. You get to join God in what he is doing to be a blessing for the world. It begins with you. As you come to Jesus yourself with your own brokenness and need, but it never stops with you. It starts with you. It radiates out through you to point others to this great king as well. And so submitting to the king's authority is the most glorious and soul-satisfying thing you could possibly do with your life. Will you place your faith in this king? Will you follow him? Will you fish with him? Let's pray. Father, there may be some people hearing this message who don't yet follow you. Lord, thank you that they're hearing your word. Lord, would you make yourself clear to them that they would place their faith in you, that they would find life and and wholeness and forgiveness and a relationship with you, perhaps for the first time today. And they would begin this life of following and fishing. Father, do that. Lord, others of us have believed in you for some time. Speak to us a fresh word today about what you're calling us to, especially during this time when our typical rhythms are disrupted. Lord, would this be a time of hearing from you, a time of extended opportunity to reflect, to rest, to trust, a time of clarity on our calling to fish for people. Lord, show each of us what that looks like for us individually, as a family, as a church. Give us opportunities, Lord, to speak the hope you have given us. Help us do so with faith and faithfulness and sensitivity. Lord, use us to grow your family. We ask this in Jesus' name, for your sake. Amen.